0: Everybody's talking about real estate these days and the impact of COVID-19 on the asset class. My name is Stuart Foley. I'm your host. This is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. And we are joined today by Max Swango of Invesco, who is one of the founding partners of Invesco's global real estate team. Max, welcome. We're very happy to have you on.
1: Stuart, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: We are in a weird spot with regard to real estate, and we're going to talk about two components, real estate equity first, then real estate debt. But I think there's a lot of unknowns post-pandemic, right? Can you walk us through the journey in the pandemic and kind of how things performed over that period?
1: Sure, Stuart. Sure. Happy, to, happy to do that. When you say real estate, remember real estate, it's a big universe and it's gotten even bigger, obviously, over the three plus decades that we've been investing in, in the asset class. So it's not just office buildings, it's not just shopping centers, it's logistics, property warehouses, it's residential properties, it's apartments, it's single family rent, it's life science projects, it's data centers, it's self storage, it's affordable housing. So it's a big, world out there. And each of these sectors, obviously, has been impacted differently by what happened in 2020. Some in a very positive way, some in a negative way. So delving into the sectors and how each sector was impacted is, is going to be most important in understanding where we were, what we went through, and
0: where we're headed. So- I want to hear about this, and I I promise you I may be asking some uninformed questions along the way, so let me apologize in advance, but can you wind the clock back maybe to first quarter of last year and get us to today at a relatively high level?
1: Sure. So in the first quarter of last year, pre-coronavirus, pre-pandemic pandemic We were really, as an asset class, we were hitting on all cylinders. We had 10 years post-GFC. We went through the GFC. We came out of the GFC very strong Had 10 years of very strong returns, both income and total returns. We were feeling very confident about the asset class. And one of the most important questions we got all the time from our investors was, when does this end? And what causes the end? And, you know, we've been through four cycles. We had been through three cycles previously. We knew a fourth one was coming. We didn't know what was going to cause it, and it was coronavirus. And it was the black swan event It was the coronavirus. So in March of last year, coronavirus comes to the U.S. We recognize that it's going to affect values in a negative way. And that started to happen in the second quarter. In the second quarter, overall, our portfolios were down about 5% in value. So not too bad relative to what was going on in the public markets, but pretty significant from a property level perspective that continued in the third quarter. Values were or returns were roughly flat as values were down, but offset by, by a very strong income return. And then in the fourth quarter of last year, the first quarter of this year, we returned back to positive performance about one and a half percent in each quarter. And it wasn't, and now with the economy coming out of lockdowns and people returning to work and returning to their lives, we've seen some very, very strong performance in the second quarter and expect to see strong performance in the third quarter as well. That's a brief summary of what returns have.
0: That is, from my perspective, very helpful. When you look across these sectors and you named a couple from a, a layperson, the thing that I always go to is, you know man, this has got to have a a tough impact on retail. And it sure sounds like a lot of people are going back to the office, but I don't have a good sense of what that looks like. So how are you viewing the major real estate sectors?
1: Right. So again, you know, I mentioned there are a lot of different sectors that we invest in, and some have done very well. Logistics properties, obviously. The growth in e-commerce has created tremendous demand for logistics properties. So Values on warehouses are very, very strong. Similar with self storage. Anything involving storage has performed very well. Data center investments, right? More use of the internet and e commerce is creating more demand for data center type storage. Put that in the category of things that have, that have performed and continue to perform very well.
0: And really, that gets into what I would refer to as a specialty sector that you know, what, go back how many years wasn't really on the radar screen of real estate investors. Is that fair?
1: Yes, traditional warehouses have been in portfolios for a very long time, but you're exactly right. Self-storage data centers fall into that specialty sector category. So what's very interesting today and what makes our asset class really exciting, one of the things that makes it really exciting is the rise of those specialty sectors. So cell storage is one, data centers is one, life science, another. You can imagine the demand for life science space today. And given the aging demographics and the fear of ongoing pandemics or what the demand for that kind of, of space is, that's an exciting sector. So those sectors, when you talk about retail, so let's go to the negative side for a second. Retail, right? The United States has still has way too much retail space, right? Right. And so there's, there is millions of square footage of retail space that needs to be repurposed in the United States. Okay? But that's something that started literally decades ago. I remember 20 years ago, a mall in my neighborhood being turned into creative office because we didn't need seven malls in North Dallas at the time, right? We probably only need one, and we're headed in that direction. So yeah. there's still more work to do. So retail used to be 25% of an institutional investor's portfolio. Those days are over. So they've gone. Retail's gone from 25% to 15%. It's probably headed south of 10%. So your portfolio that you used to have 25 is probably going to end up with 5% retail 10 years from now, and it's been replaced by logistics
0: and specialty. It's interesting you bring up that repurposing because we live in Northwest Chicagoland and relatively close to us, there's a big mall, you know, with multiple, you know, couple anchor tenants and it's going into condos. They're going to take that property and redevelop it. And it seems to me that that makes sense. I mean, a lot of these are these, a lot of these properties are very well located or situated, but there's still, I mean, there's opportunity in that reinvention, so to speak. Right
1: for sure. And, and that's a fun opportunity. The opportunity to take some well-located real estate and turn it into a more creative mixed-use type project with significantly less retail and the retail that that's there is different. Right? The 30,000, the 50,000, the 100,000 square foot store isn't there anymore. But what is what's really important is that the the most successful retailers today have recognized that they have to be excellent in both e-commerce and in bricks and mortar locations. They have to have both to be the most successful. Now, they don't need 50,000 square feet or 100,000 square feet anymore. They only need 5,000 or 10,000, right? Because a, a large percentage of their sales are done online. But people who shop, they want to know the store. They want to be able to touch and feel. They want to do size. They want to have a place to return things to. So that brick and mortar location is super important. It's just a smaller footprint today than it was.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because when you think about repurposing a mall property into residential, it somewhat creates its own demand for that smaller retailer, right? I mean, if it's a, a restaurant or a dry cleaner or nail salon or whatever it may be, it seems like that makes sense.
1: It does. So today, that 15% of retail that's in our portfolio today, I I would put in one of two categories. It's either in that mixed-use project where people want to be. It has a retail component, a residential component, and probably a, a sort of a creative office component. That's the place where people go for things that they cannot duplicate on the internet, right? It's got fountains, it's got open areas for people to congregate, it's got music, it's got activities on the weekends and Friday nights and you know, we can fly drones through our properties and take videos of packed retail where people want to be. They're not staying home, they want to be out and congregating. And those tenants, those classic mall tenants, the Louis Vuitton's, the Gucci's, the Tory Burch's, the Nike's that used to go into the interior enclosed malls are coming out of the malls and they're going into this open air experiential type real estate. So the the leasing activity that we've done in the last 12 months during the pandemic with those tenants has been very impressive. And those experiential type shopping centers. That's one category of retail that's still successful. The other category is the basic goods and services where people need to shop. So that's the grocery store, right? The number one, the number two grocery store to market, grocery, drug, food, dry cleaner, bank, that kind of center is also in a dense location, a dense residential type location is also very successful.
0: When you think about office and our clients are large asset managers, our listeners and readers are large, for the most part, insurance companies. And I've seen kind of a a spectrum of back to office strategies, some on a rotating basis. That's probably the most common that I've heard just anecdotally. Where do you think we land in the office sector?
1: Yeah. Well, now we're talking about the two most stressed sectors, right? We touched on retail and what's going on there. Office is the second of the stressed sectors. So similar to retail where office used to be half of an institutional investor's portfolio, those days are over. In your traditional Well, office is going to be 25 to 30 percent rather than 50% of an overall portfolio. You know, the jury is still out on will demand increase for office or not. Our sense is that we wouldn't want to own a commodity run-of-the-mill office building today. I wouldn't want to own a B plus building in a B plus location. What we are comfortable owning are office buildings that are suited or where people want to work okay where innovation hubs meaning companies that are innovative that need collaboration in order to innovate and they need their people to be together to grow their businesses right and that's what we want to own so those creative type office buildings so a couple of examples we sold midtown manhattan back in 2015 because our team in new york city said the companies that are really innovating and growing don't want to be in their grandfather's office building the 1970s 80s vintage 2 million square foot high-rise on park avenue they don't want to be there they want to be in the Meatpacking district they want to be in chelsea they want to be down you know in that part of new york city so we sold midtown we bought chelsea right and Google goes there now, following that, Google went there, Google's got a big, Apple, the technology companies now are congregating down in that meatpacking Chelsea location. And the market there is, is good. Cambridge, Massachusetts, the seaport, and on the waterfront adjacent to downtown Boston, very healthy, life science driven submarkets. That's where we wanna own office, those kinds of submarkets. West Los Angeles, okay, so Playa Vista, Santa Monica, Coastal, Southern California. Those are where the companies that are innovative, innovation hubs, that their goal, but rent is not so important to those companies. What's super important to those companies and how much rent they pay, not so important what's really important is their ability to attract and retain
0: talent. I was just going to ask you that. That's so funny. You said that was what I was going to say is it just seems like in today's world where we're a virtual company. Right. And it's like, well, you know, I don't want to go, I don't want to go back to my B plus office building in a B plus location. You know, I want to be here. And if, if there's somebody that that'll employ me that I can keep doing what I've been doing I'm, I'm good to go but at the end of the, uh, the other end of the spectrum if going into the office is a really cool experience that's a whole different deal and I could see I can see how that impacts recruiting and retention I mean that makes that makes total sense right
1: exactly we, we see that we have 21 offices in 16 countries the Investco real estate and so some of our offices already check those boxes some don't And the ones that don't, we've got to fix it, right? We've got to create an office environment where people want to be and where we can attract the best talent.
0: So if I can, if you'll let me, I'm going to change gears into real estate debt for a minute. Can you talk a little bit about real estate debt space and just sort of the capital structure, I mean, from my perspective, it's not a sector that I've got a deep background on. And I'm thinking that some of our audience probably does have a deep background. But if you can kind of start us at the high level and then we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, would love to. And let me start with you wouldn't invest in any asset class unless you expected a strong total return, right? So total returns are super important. And when you look at the one year, the 10 year, the 20 year, the 40 year returns of what I would call basic core real estate equity investing, those returns have been plus or minus 8% total returns. So that's a baseline to think about. If you're just going to go buy into a high-quality real estate portfolio, expect an 8% total return through cycles, right? And there's opportunities to do better than that by taking more risk. So you can invest in high-return type real estate and get, obviously, into the teens in total return. So that's your equity investment return expectation. And we've got to produce that or we're not going to attract any capital. Real estate debt. We've been investing in real estate debt since I started with the company in the 1980s. And we got super active during the global financial crisis when there was an opportunity to buy distressed debt out of banks. The good news is that was a very successful strategy. The bad news is it didn't last very long. The window closed very quickly as capital came back to the market very quickly coming out of the GFC. What our team saw coming out of the 2010-11 was, okay, there's not an opportunity to buy distressed debt anymore, but where we did see an opportunity on the real estate debt space was through making mezzanine loans. So basically making a 70% loan to value on a property and then selling off in one way or another, the zero to 50% piece of the capital stack and keeping that. 50 to 70% of value within the capital stack. And we started doing that coming out of the GFC and have accelerated and are are one of the most active lenders now in the country doing that. To do that now we're getting, when you look at the returns at that piece of the capital stack we're right around an 8% total return. So what investors love about that clearly is they're getting that 8% return that they would also get from that, that's the same total return they would get from core real estate, but they're doing it at seventy percent loan to value. So most of our clients that invest in real estate debt with us to get that risk return profile, they also have an equity investment in property as well. So they're doing it in a complementary nature. Similar total return expectation, limited upside on the debt side, right? But also limited, more limited downside because you're at seventy percent loan.
0: And I guess when I started this business on the asset management side, you know, the environment was so different, right? With rates where they are, and this is, you know, my view, you know, I I don't see rates going dramatically higher, right? And insurance companies are really in a tough spot. I mean, it's news to no one. And it's an unusual situation because the more top line they write in premium volume, the bigger problem they've got with trying to plow money back into a a really low interest rate environment. And a lot of folks seem to be looking at real estate debt as a source for that investment income. Can you talk a little bit about the stability of that income stream and if any sort of use cases or things that you've seen Obviously, you can't talk about particular clients, but just generally on the insurance side.
1: Yeah, no, you've hit on it. As I said, total return is no one's going to invest in anything if they're not going to get a a competitive total return. But one of in addition to an attractive total return that real estate offers, it also offers a very high chance to achieve an interesting income return. So on the equity side, if you're expecting an 8% total return from core real estate, your income return is typically going to be in the three to five percent range on the equity side. Real estate debt, if you're making a first mortgage, your income return is going to be pretty low, right? Slight spread over what you could get in the fixed income market. When you invest in a mezzanine strategy and you sell off that bottom piece of the capital stack, that income return of call it seven to eight percent is very attractive for our investors today. And most importantly, the question you're asking is the stability of NAV. So, you know, knock on wood, we've had a unchanged NAV in our portfolio through the crisis. So every quarter we mark our loans and that NAV hasn't changed, even through the coronavirus crisis, the reduced demand for property that we saw last year. So very stable and the income return was there every quarter.
0: So a lot of insurers are making investments through SMAs, but I have a sense that there's other structures that people explore. Can you just talk about the various structures and ways that I can get into this asset class? Sure.
1: Yeah. No. Happy to. If you're a very, very large investor, you can certainly do a separate account. But that's you know to appropriately diversify a separate account, you're talking. Minimum hundreds of millions of dollars and probably, you know, billion dollar plus to do to get an appropriately diversified portfolio. So, most investors need some sort of a coming fund. There are basically two different coming fund structures. One is a closed in vehicle, which would have a defined life, typically a seven plus or minus year life in a closed end structure. We tend to think of closed end structures being appropriate for very high return strategies. So, you know, you call capital over a three-year investment period, you manage the assets for another two or three or four years, and then you sell capital in the disposition phase and return the capital to investors. That tends to work, we think, best uh, for high-return strategies. The other structure out in the market available are open-end structures. We tend to think open end structures work better for more core and debt-type investing. Long-term the exposure to the asset class, because investors in an open-ended structure, it's perpetual life. So you can dip your toe in the water and invest however much you want to start. You can add to it every quarter. You can subtract every quarter. You stay fully invested with whatever exposure you want through an open-ended structure. And we like that structure more for the, the core, core plus and debt type, type of vehicles. That works, we really think, really well.
0: I've learned a lot. You know, I'm always the one that learns the most on these deals. And I appreciate you covering the equity side, the debt side, and and really, I, frankly, opening my eyes to some of the new specialty sectors that I really hadn't thought of. I mean, there's some, you know, as you drive north out of Chicago into Wisconsin, there's, you know, several million square foot warehouses. And I really never connected the dots between seeing something like that anecdotally and on the investment portfolio side like this. So, you know, thanks so much. I just want to close with my one question that um, I teach, and I always have my eye out for getting successful professionals to provide a little advice to the folks who may be earlier in their career than certainly I am. So it goes like this. I want to take you back to a date I know that you remember. This is your college graduation from your undergraduate institution. Now, No matter what festivities may have occurred the evening before, you, Max, are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in your cap and gown. Your name starts with S, so you're kind of in the back two-thirds of the thing. You've been waiting for a while. You walk up the steps. You go across the stage. You get a quick photo op with the president. They hand you your diploma. The crowd is going crazy, crazy. You go down the steps. You're just relieved at the whole thing. And at the bottom of the stairs, you meet Max Swango today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self? <laughs>
1: Find something you love to do, stick with it, and, and work hard. Work hard at it.
0: It's good advice, isn't it? I, you know, in advising students, I'm like, listen, you can make, you know, there's a lot of ways to make money. But liking what you do is really important, right?
1: For sure. I've been very fortunate because real estate has been a great place to be for the last 30 plus years. And people can see it and touch it and they live in it and they shop there and they work there. And while that will evolve over time, it's still the case. And it's super exciting today. And Real estate wouldn't be, well, investors need things to diversify into Especially one of the things we haven't talked about is an inflationary environment. Yeah, and it's really
0: interesting from an insurer's perspective. You know, they've got a a real conundrum where they've got liabilities that go up with inflation and a whole bunch of core bonds that don't do well in inflation. And hedging that liability risk is not easy. You know, every CIO that would ever listen to this would I think would agree with that. So It is obvious to me that real estate's your passion and that you like it. And I really appreciate you being on. So thanks so much, Max.
1: Stuart, same with you. I really enjoyed it.
0: We appreciate hearing new ideas from you. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast.